Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hey everyone, Ed Gotham here and welcome to Opto Sessions where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world uncovering their secrets to success. We've got Howard Lindzen from Phoenix, Arizona on the show today. He's the founder and a managing partner at Social Leverage, an early stage seed investment fund whose standout investments include Robinhood, eToro, Customer, Rally Road, and a lot more. Many will also know him as the founder of StockTwits, the largest online community of investors and traders. Howard also has an incredible blog, and I highly recommend it. He is answering the questions everyone's asking about the market on a daily basis. And uh, in truth, like his, his wisdom has helped me a lot over the years. In this interview, though, we dive into SPACs. What is a SPAC? Why are they interesting? Why do they exist? We also touch on some consumer trends, such as the highest savings rate in 50 years in America at the moment, and what this might mean for markets. Enjoy the show. Hey, Howard. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on the show again. No problem. How are you? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. Um, we've been in lockdown for quite some time now, so I'm sure, well, at least in England, everyone wants things to turn back to normal a little bit soon. Uh, going a bit stir crazy. I don't know how you're doing. Are you in Phoenix at the moment? I am in Phoenix at the moment. Yeah. Life is uh, a little bit opened up here for sure. Yeah. I see you posting uh, pictures. You go biking a lot and, and running and stuff. It looks quite a nice place to live. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good weather and everybody's out and about. Yeah, fair, fair. Uh, something else I've been um, seeing actually at the moment is because you, you're an investor in Rally Road and, and uh, over the last sort of couple of months or so, I've been seeing, it's baseball cards that I've been seeing everywhere, but it's been crazy how it's suddenly spreading, at least at, you know, the people I follow on Twitter, uh, the sort of FinTwit sort of network has been everywhere. How, how's that business going at the moment? I think the business is developing. It took, uh, you know, uh, maybe, a, you know, all this money's, finding and these young people with their phones and the free time has kind of dribbled into collectibles and, you know, both the digital side with NFTs, but now even on the physical side with cards, they don't fully grasp yeah. uh, the NFT side so much, but uh, the business is growing really fast for, for Rally Road. They've built a good brand. People trust it and pretty much anything they put out there is selling. Yeah. And I'm, I'm right in saying they got hold of is it the original declaration of independence is that right there's there's 20 of them uh supposedly yeah. and they did get hold of one and um it's it's going to uh they say price at around two million dollars pretty cool wow that's pretty cool yes yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah should be an interesting <laughs> um and just i mean you've been on the podcast before but could you give people a very quick uh one minute like who's howard Lindsay? Um, just so people know who you are. Yeah, I'm a uh, venture capitalist. The, uh, for the last 15 years, we're investing out of our fourth fund we just raised. We um, write uh, first checks into software companies, uh, mostly U.S., uh, financial services, enterprise, e-commerce. And then we also have our first SPAC, $340 million 
a blank check company that will be looking for uh, a merger acquisition with the, another fast growing uh, technology, most probably software company. And we were born in Toronto, live in Phoenix, and um, uh, one wife, two kids, one dog. And uh, you also, um, so you've invested in Robinhood and eToro and a number of, number of big companies. Yeah, sorry, uh, claim to fame as I started stuck twits uh, before that Wall Strip, which yeah. was acquired by CBS and Seedmaster and Robinhood, uh, eToro, Coifin, uh, Rally Road, oh, wow. um, Alpaca, a lot of soft financial companies. So come to fame in the last sort of three, four years, they've all sort of rocketed to, to big heights, haven't they? It's been a good, good few years for Harry. Yeah, I think the lesson is you can't predict. Yeah, it's been a couple of good years. I'm not uh, complaining. The, uh, we're a little early. You know, that's how, that's how tech can work. But uh, everything seems to be coming into our sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I suppose, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the SPAC you've just sort of launched. It'd be good to get... You know, this show, I just wanted to ask you about SPACs a lot, basically, because I think they're misunderstood by quite a few people and big trend at the moment. And it'd be good to get your two cents on, on SPACs and what they are, basically, and you know, what, what we should be looking for. What, what is a SPAC? Like, I mean, if we start there, like special purpose acquisition company, why do they exist as opposed to normal IPOs? And you know, what, why has it been a big trend for investors? Yeah, I think, you know, again, I think uh, it's a combination thing. You know, we went through a long period without IPOs. Um, we went through this long period where growth funds were the celebrities, um, and maybe they weren't doing as good a job with the with SoftBank. Uh, we saw where we were, and then we have this, uh, you know, this influencer model that uh, is so popular amongst creators, um, kind of filtered its way to finance. You know, with Chamath creating this way to kind of raise money and be trusted more to find a growth company than some of the growth funds themselves. And it's an old idea, you know, special purpose acquisition corporations, quite an elegant solution. And, um, you know, just being utilized in a unique way by uh, financiers right now. And then we just did one ourselves. So when we, it's, it's a trust thing, people trust us. Yeah. Uh, you have two years to find a target. Um, the capital's put up generally by the group. You know, we've put up the capital to get one done. So it's not like we're not taking risk. And, um, you know, it's it's really the retail investors have taken uh, a love to it because they feel like they get to be a part of the IPO process without paying a huge premium. So, and then you have the Fed printing money. So yeah, it's yeah. just this giant cocktail of of events that just happened to bring back this feature, which is not a new idea. It's an old feature, but uh, it's time seems to have come. And you touched on something there where you said um, it puts more power to entrepreneurs such as yourself rather than growth funds. Are you, are you talking about like PE companies and stuff like this? Is that what you mean there? Or No, I mean, uh, you know, it was, it was you know, the, the larger Sequoias and the soft banks, you know, have access to an institutional capital. And I think, you know, um, there's something more elegant about a group of people that get together to do one deal. And that's what a SPAC is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when Sequoia or, or SoftBank goes to raise a fund, you know, you're putting a team together for 12 years to do 20 deals. Uh, it's hard to keep a band together that long to focus on one thing. Yeah. And they weren't doing a great job, uh, you know, to, you know, towards the end 
a lot of sloppy uh, deals. So um, the SPAC idea is like, listen, here's our pitch. Here's our S1. Uh, we only have to do this once. And so the incentives are, are pretty well aligned. Yeah. And uh, so they have to buy a company, but only one company or multiple companies? Yeah. yeah. I think they work best as, as, as you know, don't complicate it. Yeah. I think it works best as uh, kind of a, a single company deal. Yeah. But they can be done. They can be done you know, over multiple companies as well. Yeah. But I think they, I think they work best, you know, down the middle of the road personally. So when they list, um, have they already done that deal already? Do they even have a target or, you know, cause some of them seem to be quite far along. So others not so much. It's like bike club. You're not supposed to have a target. You're not supposed to talk about it until you have the capital until it's uh, trading. Yeah. So for us, it's been about two weeks since we listed, and now we we meet as a group, and we're calling on companies and CEOs. But before that, no, you're supposed to have like a general idea, but not actually be talking to targets. Yeah, and there's a time frame. I think I believe is that two years. You're meant to have done the order. Yeah, you have two years, so the clock is ticking. It's kind of like an option uh, trade, and uh, yeah. people uh, get behind you. You know, because you have two years to kind of organize it and put it together. And so, but the, the stock is live, right? It's fluctuating price. And so is that the price movements of that stock is purely based on news coming out about potential targets or uh, people trusting the founders? Yeah, all very, all very, all very speculative, uh, somewhat silly in many ways that people uh, are betting that uh, you can do one plus yeah. one equals five. You know, and, you know, for years, the idea is it should trade right around $10 a share yeah. until there's a deal announced. Um, but yeah, people speculate. Um, they want to be behind good sponsors um, and um, can't control how people behave. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as I'm aware, it sort of skips the IPO process, which is one of the sort of benefits of it. How, where do these companies exist, though? Like the shell company that is that will acquire another company that is listed. Is it already IPO somewhere? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's confusing because you're talking about something created out of thin air. So it's, we create a public company basically out of thin air. We file an S, we put together a team, we file an S1. Yeah. And the S1 is an idea and a team. And uh, it's just a long form document that says, you know, if this, then that we're going to put okay. together a capital, we're going to, here's our management team. We're going to go on a road show to raise a certain amount of capital. Yeah. And, um, got you. And then we'll have two years to do this. Yeah. So they're all kind of filed along the same lines. Yeah. Yeah. got you. And if, the, if you don't hit your target in two years, funds are returned back to the shareholders. So that's why, yeah, an option sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. The funds are held in trust, I think up to about nine ninety a yeah. share after fees. So if people hold it through, you know, the investors that buy it at 10, probably have 10 cents of downside over two years. Yeah. Uh, but again, we'll have to see how this plays out over two years. There might be weird things happen, yeah. you know, game stops at $150. Yeah. But theoretically, if you hold it through the end, you, you have 10 cents of risk because the money's held in trust. Okay. Yeah. And so can you take us through the purpose of your SPAC and what it's trying to do, who you're looking for to acquire and to, you know, companies, and that'd be good. Yeah. I mean, like other people that have done this, we feel um, that there's just way more public companies potential out there than there are right now. You know, the demand for great 
unique growth companies like the Pelotons of the world. No one thought Peloton could be a $30 billion company, especially when it came public. So what makes a great company a public company is a great founder, yeah, always, and a market that's bigger than most people think, whether it's through acquisition or through your core product and growth. Um, so we have just a good an eye, we think, as, as the banks. Um, we've invested in hundreds of startups. Um, just like Robinhood was much bigger than people think in eToro and Stocktwits, you know, yeah. we've seen things grow despite negativity and great founders. So we think, you know, well, we've, we've already seen this. The hedge funds have, have given us an investment funds have, have allocated 340 million for us to do the same thing. So I think, you know, we're trying to spot shooting stars and founders that uh, are misunderstood in markets that are miscalculated. And we've seen that in the era of the cloud. Um, so, you know, we've been trusted to do the same thing. Yeah. So you've got 340 million at the moment to purchase one company. And then could you take us through um, pipe deals, which is another word that's been thrown around quite a lot. I think Chamath has been using it a lot. It gives you the ability to buy more expensive companies than the funds you've got, right? Or is that right? I think it's just a different way to raise capital. Okay. You know, um, again, you wouldn't have this environment of the Fed and without technology. But for example, say the team that we are after wants to pick a specific investor for more money. So what's great about a pipe is social leverage theoretically is aiming for a one to $2 billion company to buy 10 or 15% or merge for 10 or 15% with our 300 million. But with a pipe, we could target a $10 billion company yeah. because that company may just want the small dilution from our SPAC, but because of our access to bigger investors that can write bigger checks can specifically pick you know, one investor to do the pipe, whereas in an IPO, they can't do that. Okay, okay. And so a pipe allows the, the founder or, or company to pick specific investors for specific needs. Yeah. And, and so we can introduce them to those investors. It's much different than a, than a brokerage roadshow where the founder doesn't know who his investors are going to be and they got to have the quiet period and yada, yada, yada. There's, uh, there's many ways for the founders through SPACs and pipes to, to, to work directly with their investors. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And so it's, it's obvious the sort of benefits for the investors, founders, entrepreneurs, etc. Do you think um, this trend... It has some benefits for retail investors as well. Do they get early access to potentially companies that would have been private before and stuff like this? Yeah, I mean, it depends how everybody behaves. I mean, on paper, this should be a benefit for retail investors long term mm-hmm. and short term, but depending on how they pick companies and how they're priced, et cetera. And you still got to do the research. The retail investor can read the S1, they can talk to management team. We're all on Twitter. Uh, you know, they can kind of get a feel for who these people are. But, you know, if you pay huge premiums in the public market, uh, you're going to get hurt. Yeah, yeah. But if you can buy a SPAC at $10.20, pay a small premium, and you have a feel for, you know, how good the management team is and the the sponsors, you know, you might find a good deal. You also may find a good deal now, like, for example, in March post-merger where everything's getting sold off. 
but uh, you still have to do the work. And then either way, you're going to be paying less of a premium in general than an IPO, which is marked up yeah. and uh, kind of, you know, created out of thin air by other people that uh, generally you, you pay a higher price for that risk. You're supposedly having a more organized institutional uh, round put together. There's a lot of history there that will have to be questioned. And I don't think we have enough data yet. Everybody thinks that there's a lot of hot takes, you know, specs are great. Specs are bad. Yeah, yeah. It's just a divisor. It's just, it's just that number where, you know, you divide the, it's trying to give everybody the same, price, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just a divisor that everybody did to divide your capital raised by shares to get everybody at the $10 price. But they all, it all has different market caps depending on how much money was raised. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, obviously, yeah. So you've just uh, launched your SPAC and it's, I mean, you joked on your newsletter about saying that you'll always assume you'll catch the top of the, uh, the market and stuff like this happens. And SPACs, a lot of SPACs um, have got hit hard over the last couple of weeks or so and it, i mean there's been a bit of euphoria in the market you could say in that sort of area but what do you think is going to happen going forward do you think this um will mature a little bit and people will take it a bit more seriously what rather than wild speculation or what do you think is going to happen yeah. to yeah i mean i think it still comes down you gotta you gotta do great companies you know people aren't retail's not stupid um short term everybody gets you know behavior can be frothy or or panic it's very hard to get it right. I mean, we saw an opening, uh, and it's a really good point. You know, if I can raise a SPAC, that must be the top. I mean, that's a that's just a general attitude I have. Is that if I'm involved, uh oh. Uh, and I think that's just part of my personality. Yeah. Is that it's sometimes surprising, you know, to learn by doing and actually succeed. I'm not, uh, you know, I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't work on Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't have a typical finance background. Uh, I do have an MBA and went to business school, but not at uh, a top school, let's say. So I generally look at things with a with a um, more of a cynical eye. But at the same time, we put together a great team, and you know, as I tell entrepreneurs, you can't wait until someone says green light or red light. You just have to run like hell. Good things, bad things can happen. You have to have good uh, people around you. And you shouldn't try and time this. Meaning, I'm happy we didn't wait. Yeah. Like, you know, it seemed like a bubble six months ago when we had the idea, but we just said, you know, blinders on, we're going to go as fast as we can. And what happens will happen. And sure, as soon as we get public, I assume things will go to shit. But it didn't mean we weren't going to try to do this. Yeah, 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 and I think that a lot of entrepreneurs get sidetracked and and thinking about oh, what if, what if? You know, our job is to to run through walls, you know, or run through corridors while those corridors are in front of us. And yeah, walls get put up, bad things can happen, but you just don't know. So you have to act as if you can get this done. But if you wait for approval, you'll never get approval. Yeah, and um. Because I follow your um, newsletter quite closely, you've been talking about the suppliers coming for some time. And uh, did we get the supply, and that's why we hit a sort of short-term top potentially? Or yeah, a couple, a couple of things. Rates—they promised us rates would never yeah. rise until we were ninety. You know, we see that you know that happens all the time. Like it just became a foregone conclusion that rates will never rise. 
and then you had supply as well. So, so it didn't help that rates kind of shot up here, even though they're still at a very low yeah. nominal number percentage-wise. It's a huge shock to the system. People start worrying and changing their pricing models. And that's why we saw tech sell off. But at the same time, it's just still interest rates are just so low. So on a relative uh, thing, uh, supply just keeps coming. And eventually the supply, if, if you don't have any extra shocks, eventually we just start choking on all this supply. Yeah, and I, I think com- combination of like a little rise in rates, a little flinch, uh, people looked up and go, wait a minute, I'm paying a hundred times sales for this. I don't even know. You know, I just think it's all those things. And then the supply on top of it, and you had a real puke last week. But if I were to take a step back and I have to do that, you know, is there some giant macro thing? Change? No, the countries are still going to open up. The, vex- the technologies, the, the vaccine are working and it's working its way through the system you know, I think rates, unless they continue higher here, are now being priced in at least. Now people are saying, oh, rates do go up. So that's a good sign, not, not you know, yeah. because now models will factor in 2% 10-year yeah. treasuries, not 0%. So, you know, models will change. Uh, you know, banks adjust. Financings adjust. Supply will come down. Uh, and now we'll see, you know, it'll take a little while to see how many good companies there are and, and what have you, but valuations still remain high. So, uh, you know, there's a big bet that, uh, rates won't continue higher and, you know, if rates ease a little bit, I think the markets may you know, resume their uptrend, but at the same time, supply just keeps coming and that's always a wild card. Yeah. How much do you think this, um, obviously this, this massive stimulus bill has just been signed off so it's coming in the next two weeks or one week or something at the start it, it does is that going to influence equities quite a bit do you think and when that stops in the future you know will that have any implications as well i'm not a i'm not a macro person so i just try and watch prices i mean um there's just so many experts on both sides saying you know the dollar is going to shit yeah. and bitcoin's going to uh, infinity um I don't think it works that easily, right? The U.S. dollars held up pretty well, all things considered, you know, best house in yeah, the yeah. neighborhood. And I think people have been devastated and they need some help. And so, you know, I don't think anybody knows for certain what will happen. I, for one, hope the money gets into the right hands. Yeah. No, I won't. So, so I'm, op- I'm pretty optimistic about it. Because uh, another thing that... Um again, from your newsletter, was um, Michael Batnick's been talking about the uh, savings rate. It's like a 50-year high or something crazy. 16% of annual income or something is being saved at the moment due to like, you know, what's been happening. Hard for me to believe. I'm seeing the same data. I hear from lenders, same thing. No one's borrowing. Um, the numbers are the numbers. I mean, people have done you know, in Japan, what happened is no matter how much they printed and gave to the people, they kept saving. Yeah. Americans are generally spenders. So this has been a shock to people. Yeah. Do you see that, you know, so over the next six months, are they, are you suddenly going to see retail? We'll know more. We'll know more. Right now, uh, people have done what they didn't expect here, which is to save so, money, pay down their debt. Yeah. It's not an American thing to do that. Um, so it's just a one-off pandemic panic. And things will go back to normal. We just won't know. I don't yeah. think anything, any, anything people are doing are speculating. Um, 
and conscious of time, but I was, I was just, uh, last thing I wanted to ask you about was um, the great unbundling of indexes, which I know you've, you've talked about a bit, but I think it's really relevant uh, for our community to describe your sort of uh, thoughts on that and you know how, how individual investors can improve their sort of strategies, basically. Well, I think for, for a decade at least, um, this idea that, oh, you shouldn't pick stocks, you should index, you should index. Uh, and I've always, I think it's a great idea. Some people, you know, if you don't have time to invest, you should focus on your business and on your personal life and your family. Um, but it's such an amazing American freedom to be able to pick companies. And I, and, and I think we went down this path where Americans were you know, indexing and when you index, you end up with the same portfolio as your neighbor uh, and your neighbor's neighbor. And I'm not saying that's bad, but it led to some very weird behavior in the markets uh, yeah. where we all own the same portfolio. And when you all own the same portfolio, it leads to corporate behavior that uh, people can get away with stuff like the banks. They were, you know, if we look at any of the banks, they're just doing terrible behavior with setting up accounts and, and it, we see at Wells Fargo where there's so much fraud and, you know, basically racketeering by the CEO. And, you know, you, you wouldn't get punished if you're, if you're a criminal organization and each week uh, the S&P does their buying of, of, uh, with, your, with the citizens' capital and you're part of the S&P 500 and you get the capital. But, well, your stock is, is kind of buoyed. Uh, regardless of your behavior, or it takes much longer for that behavior to be punished because you have to just constantly be in the news, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I think Americans have lost this muscle of investing post, you know, the internet bubble and then the financial crisis that followed. People were just burned by owning housing stocks or technology stocks. But along comes the iPhone and along comes Robinhood and along comes Uber and along comes all these great brands and kids and, and social networks and kids are like, wait a minute, what the fuck do I own Exxon or Wells Fargo? I could own, you know, Peloton and Lulu yeah, yeah. and Snapchat. And I don't even know what the S&P 500 is. Yeah. So I think we're seeing this unbundling where kids put a portfolio together of 15 companies or 10 companies, or they ask their friends or they read some article and they're just unbundling what happened before them. And so I think it's a good thing, yeah. uh, but it'll lead to other problems. You know, we've seen it with GameStop and yeah, see yeah. some bad behavior and, and weird behavior on its own. Um, but I prefer that type of weird behavior than everybody, vanilla and chocolate. I don't think I don't think investing is something where everybody should have the same product yeah, and yeah. we're all guaranteed 8%. And then who made up the indexes anyways and why are those written in stone? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, investing is very much unique in a, a creative muscle and I think it's good to see people uh, flexing. It. Yeah. Awesome, Howard. Well, thanks very much for this quick interview today. And um, where can our community come get more insights from yourself? Yeah, I'm easy to find Howard linzen.com uh l-i-n-d-z-o-n or on twitter at howard linzen or at stock twits at howard linzen i write a free blog uh every morning on trends and investing and like to goof off with the community on stock twits and twitter so it's easy to find me don't be shy ask questions you know ask questions find your mentors 
um, there's a lot of great mentors out there and kind of that's what we believe. Thanks, Howard. I highly recommend the newsletter, by the way. It's uh, one of, well, my favorite, I think, that I get. And it's daily, <laughs> daily insights on the, uh, on the stock market. But thanks again, Howard. Have a great day. Thanks, Opta. Thanks, man. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Kofruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.